0: I'm Eric Sorensen, and you're listening to The West Block. If there is one issue that has gripped the federal government's attention this fall, it is affordable housing, at a time when a lot of Canadians can't afford the rising costs of rent or buying a home.
1: Housing is so connected to affordability for Canadians, and that is why our focus is supply, supply, supply.
0: Among the initiatives, Ottawa is earmarking $15 billion in loans to build more rental housing, but that won't be available for another two years, a sign the government is facing more financial constraints. Another sign, a $40 billion deficit. And the cost of carrying the federal debt will be $46.5 billion. That almost matches the $49 billion in federal health transfers expected for the same period. For more now on how the government plans to tackle the affordability crisis and rein in spending, we're joined by Treasury Board President Anita Anand. So, Minister, uh, the board, uh, Conference Board of Canada says uh, we're stuck in the red with no room to move. How would you describe Canada's fiscal health?
1: I think we should take a step back and recognize that Canada has a triple A credit rating. It has the lowest debt to GDP ratio in the G7 as well as the lowest deficit in the G7 as well as low unemployment. And so across all of those very significant markers, Canada is a leader in terms of our fiscal health. The fall economic statement highlights areas where we need to take a targeted approach to assist Canadians. And one of those areas is affordable housing. And so we are definitely... Striking the balance between the fiscal responsibility track that we are on as well as being there to support Canadians, which is exactly what our government has done during the pandemic and will continue to do.
0: As you say, the big problem you're trying to address here is affordable housing and it will come, a big piece of that will come in the form of loans starting two years from now. But for renters and for mortgage holders, their crisis is right now. I mean, rents went up over 8% in October What's in it for them?
1: Well, I want to stress that we are seeking to build more homes faster and that includes through $20 billion to the CMHC to assist with support for low-cost financing as well as $300 million for co-op housing and you mentioned the $15 billion for apartment rentals. We are going to continue to be there for Canadians and we also introduced a mortgage charter and That is going to enable Canadians when they are having issues with their banks to stress that they need assistance for example in the area of fees that may be accompanying uh, issues relating to their mortgage.
0: I mean some have pointed out about the mortgage charter that a lot of this is just guidance and that the banks already offer that guidance.
1: Well, the mortgage charter is very important because Canadians don't often know what their rights are when they are visiting their financial institution. So waiving fees and costs that would otherwise be charged for relief measures, indicating that they have some rights when it comes to amortization where interest might be charged if they are in a negative situation. Uh, so those are all issues that we know will be useful for Canadians when they visit their banks to discuss their mortgages.
0: Uh, one of the problems with uh, housing affordability is that you know, the problem has grown so quickly because housing hasn't kept up with population growth in this country. There's a former advisor to the government who said, uh, for example, well, we could limit foreign students or we could cut back on uh, temporary foreign workers. Can you do that? And if not that, what can you do?
1: The housing supply is clearly an issue across the country. We need to continue to partner with municipalities and provinces to ensure that supply increases. So on the supply front, Minister Fraser has been in touch with municipalities across this country, Vancouver, Brampton, Halifax, to name a few, to ensure that they are partnering to build affordable housing. And the money is coming largely from the federal government, from our Rapid Housing Accelerator Fund, and we will continue to provide funding to municipalities in order to build those units.
0: We talked about the ballooning debt. Uh, are you seized of the potential for you know voter backlash that is brewing here? I mean, this, this happened to previous governments when the debt went up as it's going up right now.
1: As I said, Canada has a AAA credit rating, the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio in the G7, and is on a strong fiscal track. At the same time, what our government will always do is to support Canadians, especially vulnerable Canadians in their time of need. That's why we have the Canada Child Benefit, which has lifted almost 500,000 children out of poverty. That's why we introduced $10 a day childcare. That's why we led the increase in old age security for our seniors and also introduced the business loans for small businesses and extended that program not once but twice.
0: You were Minister of Defence. You know what's needed at Defence. Uh, now you're Treasury Board and you know how little fiscal room there is. Uh, let me just ask you about uh, something that General Wayne Eyre said. Uh, the Chief of Defence said, uh, staff said this to our Mercedes Stevenson on Remembrance Day. I am very, very concerned about our lack of our, our, our readiness state. We have
2: um, much to do to get our readiness back to where it needs to be.
0: So would you agree with the Chief of Defence Staff about Canada's lack of readiness?
1: I was in the portfolio as the Minister of National Defence and we do need to grow our Canadian Armed Forces. We are seeing a shortfall in recruitment and we need to make sure that we are at all times ready. That's on the personnel side. And on the procurement side, we have major procurements in the future continuing, for example, the purchase of the F-35s that I announced when I was the Minister of National Defence. I will say we have the sixth largest defense budget of all NATO countries and our defense spending will continue to increase. I We'll include in that the almost $40 billion that we are spending on NORAD modernization. Our defense spending is set to double under strong, secure, engaged beginning from 2017 onwards. We do need to continue to make sure we are ready. And I know that Minister Blair and Chief Air are doing the job that they need to do for our country.
0: Yeah, and as Minister Blair said himself, we're we're facing fiscal challenges, which means the heads of all of these departments are facing that. He certainly is. Um, You know, the new investments are being made, but is the reality check? There will be less money because if you look back to 2017, what's going to be available will be almost a billion dollars less than was projected a few years back.
1: I think when those comments were made, they were referring to the spending review. And the spending review is actually specific that it will not include the Canadian Armed Forces. The amounts that I tabled in the supplementary estimates included amounts relating to outsourcing, third-party contracting, as well as executive travel. Those are funds that we are asking all department to see where they can make savings at a time when Canadians are watching their pocketbooks. The government of Canada is no different, but as I said, in this review, we have specifically exempted the Canadian armed forces. And so we are looking for funds simply where there is unused or unnecessary costs, such as in the area of travel and outsourcing of contracting.
0: And, and last question on this. the You know, NATO allies have pressed Canada for years to meet the, that obligation of 2% of GDP uh, in spending on defence. What does it say then to our allies when you look forward at what's being projected? It seems to suggest... That 2%, that's not happening, and it's not happening for years.
1: Well, as I said, our defence spending is increasing under strong, secure, engaged, and we will continue to invest in capabilities. The F-35s are one example, but... We are a very trusted NATO partner and I will say that we will continue to ensure that we are delivering on our commitments. The supplementary estimates that I laid on the table recently also included increases for the canadian armed forces compensation and benefits in the amount of approximately 500 million dollars as well as 500 million dollars for ukraine so those are priorities for us as well and we will continue to do what we need to during this fiscal period
0: it's not an easy job for you these days in that portfolio i would think managing the purse strings for the government.
1: It certainly is an economic period where we need to watch our purse strings as well as to make sure we're delivering on the priorities that are so important for our country. We are in a changing global strategic environment, and we will continue to ensure uh, that we deliver for our country. And in terms of our NATO obligations, as I said, we have the sixth largest budget of all NATO countries. We need to continue to be committed to our multilateral obligations, obviously, as well as to the situation here at home.
0: Minister Anand, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: The fall economic statement gave the Liberals a chance to show Canadians they know they're struggling and they're doing something about it. Especially when it comes to housing. The opposition wasn't buying it. can be summed up very simply. Prices up. Rates up. Debt up. Taxes up. Times up for Justin Trudeau. I think about young people and how they are struggling to find a place they can afford, struggling with rent. And I think
2: about the fact that most of the measures for affordable homes aren't going to start until at least two years from now.
0: To talk about the politics behind this and the other big political stories swirling in Ottawa, the Conservatives' opposition to Canada's free trade agreement with Ukraine, we're joined now by our Inside Politics panel, the Globe and Mail's Ottawa bureau chief, Robert Fife and the Toronto Star's Stephanie Levitz. Stephanie, the economic statement uh, showed the government is kind of boxed in on spending. I mean, it just more or less stated that. I mean, they're trying to signal prudence on the one hand, but we've got your back on the other. What do you think it accomplished?
3: I think it accomplished them coming up the middle. Um, when both of your opponents are saying you've done something wrong, perhaps in the eyes of the government, it means you've done something right. You've not gone too far in one direction or too far in the other direction. The challenge facing the liberals is that with all of the spending measures that governments announce, it's pretty rare to ever be able to have something that you can roll out the door tomorrow. COVID was an exception in terms of the pandemic benefits, but ordinarily the governments like to frame spending as investment. The challenge, of course, for the liberals right now is with Canadians facing an everyday imminent cost of living crisis are looking to the federal government and saying, well, what are you doing for me today? And the government's argument that, listen, what we're doing is not spending money, because if we spend money, it's going to make inflation worse. That's a bit of an esoteric argument for most Canadians to grasp in their hands.
0: Bob, do you think they're hitting that sweet spot? Or is it if both sides are saying, uh-uh, it really means no, nobody likes what you're doing right now?
2: Well, look, uh, the, liberal, the Liberal government, this Liberal government, has not had a very good track record when it comes to controlling spending. Uh, we've spent, uh, since uh, 2019, uh, the spending has jumped $100 billion to $526 billion. Now, part of it, of course, had to do with the pandemic, but a lot of it hadn't, because all that spending is gone now, and, and yet we're still spending that kind of money. And the idea that, that after the election campaign, which we expect in 2025, or me- perhaps next year, uh, next fall, that they're going to be under 1% of GDP in terms of spending, um, I think I wouldn't put a lot of money on that. Just think about them as they head into an election campaign. They're going to want to spend, because this is in their DNA. Are they going to be able to hold to those fiscal anchors that Ms. Freeland put out in her economic statement?
0: I wouldn't wouldn't bet the farm on it. Can they bet the farm on having the NDP support? in the near term and all the way through to 2025?
3: Well, one of the things that's interesting about the fiscal guardrails that, that Bob just alluded to is the fact that it leaves no room for a multi-billion dollar program known as National Single-Payer Pharmacare. And the New Democrats have been pretty clear that this, you know, this is their line. in the supply and confidence agreement they have that props up the Liberals, you know, the deal states that there has to be it originally state there needs to be a PharmaCare system in place by the end of this year. That has basically been dialed back to some kind of legislative framework in place by the end of this calendar year. We still haven't even seen that. And the number of, of um, sitting days to introduce such a bill rapidly ticking down. But the New Democrats have, you know, begun letting it known sort of around Ottawa, I think, that. They can rip up the supply and confidence deal agreement at any time. It doesn't mean necessarily the government will fall. It means that everything becomes on a case-by-case basis in terms of will the New Democrats vote in support of the government or will they not? And perhaps politically that's in fact a better place for the New Democrats to be. Instead of having everything that they do, every criticism that they levy at the government is met with a well, okay, except you're supporting them.
0: Bob, are are the liberals right now the caucus and liberals generally Are they're, they're anxious about the polls are they anxious enough about their leader and the polls to do anything about it? I don't think we're there yet
2: uh, with, the, with the caucus. Um, I think we'll have a better idea in the new year if those polls continue to be where they are right now with the um, you know, Liberals 14 points behind the Conservatives. Uh, I think those questions will begin to be asked more and more. This week, however, has been actually a good week for the Liberals. Um, they came out of the economic statement without a lot of criticism And, you know, Pierre Polyev played into their hands uh, later this week on Ukraine and on another issue involving him coming out of the the door right away and asking uh, suggesting that there was a terrorist act behind what happened on Niagara Falls and then claiming it was CTV that wrote that said that when it looks like it was Fox News but yeah. um, so they've actually fought back this week against Mr. Polyev, and I think they feel pretty good about how they've handled
0: that. Uh, Stephanie, yeah, I mean uh, Mr. Polyev now has been the leader of the opposition for 14 months, pretty tight in his messaging over those 14 months, uh, not a lot of missteps. And then we had this vote, uh, first of all, <clears throat> on Ukraine. It, it's upset with provisions to promote the carbon tax when there's really nothing that, that insists that uh, a carbon tax be imposed by Ukraine. What's behind that response?
3: It's a good question. I mean, one of the reasons Mr. Polyev is so beloved, right, by his fellow members of parliament and by a large swath of the grassroots of the party is his commitment to his ideological principles, that he doesn't waver, that he's been saying the same thing, Um, in the same way for the last 20 years or so of his elected political life. And you can imagine a scenario in which, you know, the folks inside his office are taking a look at this particular piece of legislation and going, oh, my God, it mentions carbon. We hate carbon. We hate carbon pricing. We don't like carbon pricing. So, therefore, we must be about this because we've always been against carbon pricing. And so they stick to their ideological principles in that way and just sort of discount the potential broader political impact, that that ideology about carbon pricing not to mention the fact – it can be fact-checked right out of there. The bill does not the, – the free trade agreement does not commit Ukraine to putting in place a carbon price. Meanwhile, if they want to join the EU, they're going to have to talk about carbon pricing. Vladimir Zelensky himself has signed this agreement, meaning he supports it. So if you're in favor of supporting Ukraine, which the conservatives claim they are, but somehow against a deal Zelensky signed, it's a really politically messy situation he seems to have backed himself into.
0: Yeah, Bob, and as you were mentioning the, you know, the um, that explosive crash at the Rainbow Bridge, he then had that angry reaction to the question about his use of the terming it, uh, terrorism angry reaction to the cp reporter i mean is he playing because it's the media he was playing to his base well he's playing to his base they like this when he
2: confronts journalists and <laughs> um, can put them off track this was a young cp reporter uh, and good for her she stood up to him but he, the base loves that and you watch on social media he told those journalists you know mainstream journalists but uh, that to me was less of a concern than the, his stand on Ukraine. He outright lied to the Canadians in saying that the, this trade deal was going to impose a carbon tax on Ukraine. It's going to be terrible for your Ukrainian farmers. Blah 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 blah. The Ukrainian uh, um, embassy here put out a statement. It has nothing to do. We're not getting a the carbon. They're not imposing a carbon tax on us. And. Uh, look, I, I I think that uh, you have one explanation for it, but there might be another one. Is that he's playing to the peop, peop supporters of the People's Party uh, who, of Canada, who are support, who don't, who are pro-Russian, uh, and because Maxine Bernier has been out there saying we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine, and I think he's he may be playing to those people uh, because he's worried about them some of those people carved off if there's an election campaign. And if that's the case, that's not, very, that's not a, a, a very good leader and, the, and the, uh, a leadership moment, I should say. And the Liberals, uh, even on Friday, the Prime Minister was out there saying, see, this guy is a magna Trumpite guy by, uh, by uh, not supporting Ukraine
0: on this free trade agreement. It looks like he's playing to the far right. Stephanie, I mean, isn't that the you know the risk that he takes if he's playing to the far right to hold that base? At the same time, when his poll numbers are rising into the mid 30s, which means he's now attracting some votes that are not the base, and you want to hold those swing voters, is he giving them reason to have pause?
3: He. Mr. Polyev's strength, and and conservatives will say, the strength of the polling numbers right now is driven by the fact that most of the time he talks about the things that matter to people. He talks about their concerns, about their mortgage costs. He talks about the rising price of groceries. When he stays on that economic message, people look at him and go, yeah, man, that guy gets me. That guy gets me. And where Mr. Polyev falters, and I believe that we saw this numerous times this week, is when he is pushed off that message. And when he tries to sort of scramble around and come up with a justification or a statement or a comment that has nothing to do with his his natural strengths. And so when, you know, if that messaging is designed, say, to, to lure a particular segment of voters on an issue that is not material to the vast majority of the voting public, he does get himself into trouble because he doesn't always have the courage of his convictions when he does it.
2: And I I can imagine there are a lot of Conservative MPs like James Bazan and others who are very, very strong, or Ukrainian Canadians to begin with, but are very strong supporters of Ukraine who cannot be very happy with that. In fact, you you notice that the foreign affairs critic for the Conservatives, Michael
0: Chong, was absent and silent, not something he wants to get involved in. I haven't seen him say anything about it. Well, I mean, his bearing, uh, Mr. Polyev's bearing and his tone is going to matter increasingly to Canadians, and uh, this may be a moment where they're starting to kind of take more notice. Stephanie, Bob, thanks for joining us. Thank Thank you. you. Now for one last thing. A pair of milestones were passed this month that will do nothing to ease the hand-wringing that is gripping the governing parties in Washington and Ottawa as they look ahead to re-election. Joe Biden just turned 81. Remember when he was a youngish 74 a few years back? Well, now he's older, and the paralyzing fear in his own party is that even against a candidate who to them is utterly unfit to be president biden could lose and all those candles on his birthday cake didn't help justin trudeau is only 51 but he too has passed a milestone eight years as prime minister and the last five prime ministers who got this far did not survive the next election forced out by their own party or by voters sitting in the wings at the eight-year mark all prime ministers in waiting trudeau is the sixth to reach eight years which historically puts pierre polyev on deck at an opportune moment And that is giving Liberals high anxiety. Liberals here and Democrats there are understandably worried about sinking approval ratings for Trudeau and Biden. Voters in many countries are restless with their governing parties. And while age 51 is a long way from 81, incumbency has its own way of aging political leaders. I'm Eric Sorensen. The West Block will be back next Sunday.